he sat there and, you know, he'd been crying and, and he's like, you know what? I would honestly rather rush a machine gun nest than feel grief, than feel this way. That just gives an example of the intensity that sometimes we as men are conditioned to when it comes to suppressing and repressing what we're actually feeling in order to be perceived as strong within our culture. And for most men, there will come a time in their life when they'll realize this mechanism does not work. It will break down. It fundamentally will start to have a net negative impact on their relationships, on their finances, on their health, you know, on their family, on their business, where they'll really start to see the damage, the real, and I mean that, the real damage that this suppression and repression is having on their life. And they won't be able to ignore it anymore. And it might unfortunately come on the other side of hitting rock bottom. All right, my friends, it's Dr. Anthony Balduzzi, and I want to welcome you back to another episode here on the Fit Father Project podcast. This one today is going to be a unique episode because we're bringing one of my friends on, Connor Beaton, who is the author of the brand new book, Men's Work. And today we're basically going to do a breakdown of what I consider to be a very profound book and a book that will touch the lives of tens of thousands, if not of hundreds of thousands of men at the time of 2023 and beyond. So Connor, I'm so happy you're here and I'm going to read your bio before I give you the floor and we can talk about this deep and profound book. So Connor Beaton is the founder of Man Talks, an international organization focused on men's wellness, success, and fulfillment. He is a coach, facilitator, teacher, podcast host, and speaker, helping men all over the world find purpose, healthy love, a joy-filled life, and fulfilling sexual connection. His teachings draw from an in-depth apprenticeship in Jungian psychology, gestalt, cognitive behavioral therapy, and Buddhist and Taoist traditions. Connor has a no-BS approach coupled with a compassionate understanding of our own human limitations, and he has coached thousands of men through private coaching, group work, workshops, retreats, and masterminds, and has shared the stage with world-class speakers like Gary Vaynerchuk, Lewis Howes, Daniel Laporte, and many more. And for more, you can always learn about Connor Beaton at his website, mantalks.com. Connor, thanks for coming on today. I'm really happy to introduce you to our FitFather community. There's going to be a lot of men that will resonate with this, and like fair warning for everyone listening, this is going to be a deep discussion a discussion of the psyche, a discussion of our past, a discussion of understanding of self and of one another as men. So I would love for you to introduce yourself to everyone past what I've shared. And also I want to ask you, what is men's work and why write this book? Yeah, well, I appreciate the introduction. It's always interesting sitting and hearing your own bio, as I'm sure you felt. I mean, outside of that, I'm a father. And I, you know, I love your mission and, and the work that you're doing. I think it's become more and more apparent to me that as, as I step into the role of fatherhood, my son's 21 months old, how important it is for me to keep my body healthy and my mind healthy. And so that's been, I'm rounding the base to 40 next year. And it's been a mission of mine, a goal to be in the best shape of my life by 40. And I feel like I'm on good track for that. So you've, you've inspired me along the way as well, unbeknownst to you, maybe. But I, that's really the most important part. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Uh, you know, I'm an older brother to four siblings. I don't think there's much to know outside of the bio. Hopefully you'll get a sense of more of who I am. I've had many sort of like past careers that have led me to write the way that I write and to dig into the topics that I like to dig into. But in terms of what men's work is, you know, there's sort of the, the genre that many of us are involved in that can be classified as men's work, right? 
whether it's helping men better connect to their body, better connect to their sexual desires, uh, step into the type of fathers, husbands, business leaders that they ultimately want to be, ultimately want to be in the world. All of that could be classified as men's work. There's sort of this older version, like the mythopoetic movement that included Robert Bly, who wrote Iron John, you know, David Data's work with Way of the Superior Man, No More Mr. Nice Guy. Essentially, men's work is the the healing of our relationship to our own masculinity within ourselves, the masculinity within our culture and within our relationships to other men. So men's work is is many things. It's many things to many different people. But for me, men's work, and the reason why I wrote this book is specifically that most of us as men have been born or grown up with a kind of intensity living within us that no one has really taught us how to wield or deal with. So many men walk around the world with uh, an intense charge of anger or anxiety or loneliness or pain or, or bitterness or resentment or whatever it is. And no one has actually taken the time to say, here's how you deal with that intensity that, that lives within you. And the reason why I think that this is so important, and most of it ties back into the pain that we've been carrying around, is that no one has taught us as men how to deal with the pain that we have endured, either in our childhood or in our adult life. And no one has taught us how to deal with the pain that we have passed on, infidelities, you know, betrayals that we have enacted, the failures that we may have caused within our marriages or businesses or our families. And so a lot of men are, are walking around the world wanting to achieve something in their life, wanting to build something, wanting to deeply connect to their family, but they feel stunted in some capacity. They feel unable to do so. And after working with thousands and thousands of men from around the world, what I started to notice is that it's largely because we have a culture of pain avoidance as men, that we we have this false notion that you're stronger as a man if you are able to repress and suppress your hurt, your pain. And so that's the tactic that most of us are taught as men. And the problem with that is that, A, it doesn't work, <laughs> just to put it bluntly. But B, uh, and we'll probably talk about this more later, your pain has its own sort of intelligence. And so the more that you repress it, the more that that part of you comes out sideways in your life drinking, drug use, porn addiction, sex addiction, betraying partners, infidelities, you know, gambling, being irresponsible in some capacity. So we as men have to be willing to sort of go on this quote unquote hero's journey of going into the cave within ourselves, facing the dragon within ourselves, because we all expect ourselves to go out into the world and face the dragons and the hardship of the world. But if we're not willing to do that within, then we're going to be stunted in some way. We're not going to be able to fully bring ourselves out into the world and give who we are and what we're capable of and what we want to our family our friends, our communities. So that's um, sort of a condensed version of hopefully what men's work is. Yeah, really good answer. And we're going to unpack this all in detail. And my intention in moderating this discussion with you is basically having gone through your book is to ask questions and lead people through the four parts of your book and the structure, which is part one is lead. 
two is love, three is liberate, four is legacy. And in, in the lead chapter, you open the book with a bold statement. And that statement is the work of men begins with pain. What does this statement mean? And why is that so important for men to understand? Yeah, well, there's many ways that I could go about answering that question. I think one of the main ones is most men have grown up in an environment where they viewed and and learned how to be a man, how to be masculine from men who never learned how to be with their own pain. You know, so they viewed fathers who how they got through life was with alcohol, was through avoidance, was through shutting down. And so for many of us, we have had just countless examples of men who have been afraid of their pain. And the reason why I say a man's work begins with pain is because the truth is that many of us have been hurt at some point in our life. We felt neglected. We felt abandoned. You know, maybe you experienced verbal abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse growing up. Maybe you felt like you never really belonged within culture or society or within your friend circle or within your family. And the challenge is that we carry that pain around and it it becomes the barrier for us to connect with the people in our lives. It becomes the block that's preventing you from having the type of sexual connection that you want with your wife or your girlfriend. It becomes the barrier for you to really truly connect with your kids and feel like you're effective at parenting. And so if we don't deal with this part, it then becomes the thing that is getting in the way. And for most of us, for, for most men, we, this sort of subtext that I, I didn't necessarily talk about in the book, but the subtext to this is when you start to face your pain, what you're really starting to face is who you are when you feel powerless. And for almost every single man, at some point in his life, he's been put in a position of powerlessness, sometimes against his will, right? Being picked on at school, bullied, feeling powerless, not being able to, you know, help a mom who is a single mother and is, you know, saying like, your, you know, your father was abusive towards me or he abandoned us or something along those lines. Powerlessness again. So whenever we feel powerless as a child, we, we carry a very deep pain within us that then teaches us that we we need to compensate for that in some capacity. So we start to seek power. We start to seek control. We start to seek being in these positions where uh, we are seen as invulnerable. And it's our willingness to be open and transparent about our hurt, about our pain, that is also the connective tissue of relationships. So like, if you think about the relationships, and I'll, I'll end my answer with, with just this one piece that I think is very important. If you look at a lot of the relationships that men have with one another, and you really ask them, do you feel like you have a really deep, meaningful connection with the men in your life? A lot of them will say no. You know, like in the UK, there was a, a study done that asked men, do you feel like you have a close best friend? And 50% of men said no. 50%, half of men said, no, I don't feel like I have somebody that I can call that I, that I really trust. And the reason for that, when you dig a little bit deeper underneath the surface, is that many male relationships are surface level in the sense that we talk about our wins, we talk about our successes, we talk about the notches on the belt, we talk about all the, the shit that's going well in our life, but we don't talk about the really deep and meaningful things that have shaped us into who we are that were painful, that were hard, that were challenging, right? The moments in our childhood that we've never shared with anybody, the moments in our adult life 
where we maybe made decisions that were less than optimal, right? To, to put it a, a sort of easy way, but where we betrayed ourselves. We don't share those things with the men in our lives. And so we feel alone. We feel isolated. So why we have to begin with pain is because we have to start to bring some of that experience forward into our relationship. And a mentor of mine has a great saying. He says, we are, we are wounded in relationship and we have to heal in relationship. And so, you know, we get hurt by our parents, by our family, by friends at school, by bullies, et cetera. And we have to heal in relationship. And usually that starts with other men. And generally speaking, and this, this is, I promise, the last piece that I'll say, the act of being a man who is able to turn towards his own pain, recognize it, admit it, work with it, reveal it to other people, has a kind of psychological, emotional, spiritual, and physical strengthening that naturally occurs on the other side of that. Because we prove to ourselves as men, I am capable and competent of going in and facing the hard parts of myself. And if I can do that within myself, then certainly I have at least a chance to do it out in the world. And so that's why it's really, really important because so many men are walking around in the world feeling like they're not capable or competent of facing the hardship of life because they haven't faced the hardship of their own existence, of their own past, of their own decisions and their own choices. Man, powerful. And I'm reflecting as you're sharing this directly onto our Fit Father community now. We have this Facebook group and certainly people's interaction with our coaches and our team and our staff. And one of the things that people do early in the program is we encourage people to post these pictures of themselves, like the day zero picture. And you want to talk about like, that seems like that's hitting on all those things. It's men, here I am. This is the state I am in. This is the pain that's gotten me here. I am shirtless. I am overweight. I do not like how I look and I feel. Like see me and walk with me. And I, I think there's this vulnerability aspect that is working for men psychologically in our community because of this. And I think it's nice to really elucidate some of the mechanisms. Now, to continue, you quote Carl Jung a lot throughout this book. He's obviously been a massive influence in your understanding of the psyche. And I want to read a quote that you have from chapter one. The new man must bear the burden of the shadow consciously, for such a man knows that whatever is wrong in the world is in himself. And if he only learns to deal with his own shadow, he has done something real for the world. He has succeeded in shouldering at least an infinitesimal part of the gigantic unsolved social problems of the day. So I want to ask you, what is Jung's premise here? What is the shadow? And what are common representations of the shadow in men? And how does our own men's work kind of relate globally to what we experience in the collective? Yeah, such a good question. And I, I love that you read the quote off because it's it's one of my favorites, you know, and it's, there's a reason why it was chapter one. The shadow is essentially, I mean, it's, it, it can be a complex thing. So I'll try and just sort of distill it down. The shadow is the, for, for all of us, the kind of like hurt locker. So where we store a lot of the things that we don't like about ourselves, it's the place that you hide your insecurities, your, your fears, your worries, your doubts. It's the place that you put the parts of you that you don't want other people to know about or see, right? The things that you sort of hide from your wife or your girlfriend or your friends or your colleagues or your, you know, people at work. So it's, it's this kind of psychological hurt locker that we store a lot of the parts of ourselves that we don't want other people to know about. 
And the reason why it's so important is because it's still you, right? Still you, still a part of you. But it's in the disowning of that part that we empower it. So the more that we try and disown it, the more we try and reject it, you know, we, we as men, most men have a kind of civil war going on inside of them that they're, that they're kind of aware of, right? They know that it's happening. They know that they're battling themselves. So I'll give you a very concrete example. A lot of guys have a very negative, harsh, and demeaning self-talk. So the way that they speak to themselves, this sort of inner critic and this judge will start to pop up. Why the hell did you do that? Why did you say that? What's wrong with you? You know, you're so stupid. You're such a piece of garbage. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. That is the shadow speaking. That's the shadow talking to you. And that shadow is trying to get you to assimilate it, to bring it back into your personality. So the reason why Jung said that it's such an important part is because for many of us, that's where we put our pain. Right? That's where we put the hurt from our past as we store it in the shadow. And so it's important because if we can begin to confront this part of us that we don't like, right? that you don't like as a man, I don't like my insecurities, I don't like my weaknesses, I fucking hate this judgment. Can I swear on your show, by the way? I've just dropped some bombs. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'll, keep, yeah, drop them as I'll try and keep it to a minimum. But, but you know, if, if we can confront that part and begin to understand it, begin to accept it, begin to welcome it back into ourselves, begin to even love that part of ourselves, then we can begin to do that with the people around us, right? You can begin to view your wife or your girlfriend and see the parts of her that maybe you don't like, and you can begin to accept them and love them versus constantly being at war with them. You know, a lot of conflict happens in relationships because we are at war with this part of our partner that we just don't like and we wish didn't exist and we wish that they would change and we want them to be different. And so we have to learn how to love the full and accept the full parts of who we are. And that's not easy work. In, In Jungian, that's sort of like the, that's the dragon, right? These insecurities, these fears, these doubts, those are the the parts of you that you've been at war with that you need to start to welcome back in. And that's not to say that you should act insecure or needy, you know, or that you should let your fears dictate your life. But it means that you don't allow them to be in control by rejecting them constantly. So I'll give one last example. I want you to imagine, if you're listening to this, that you're sitting at the head of the table and at the table are a dozen kids, okay? There's 12 kids at this table. And on the one side, on the, let's just say the right-hand side, are all the children that you listen to. You like them, you give them love, you give them praise, you give them adoration, you, you encourage them, you cheer them on. That's the, the one side that you like and enjoy. On the other side are the children that you dislike. You can't stand them. They irritate you. You're constantly yelling at them. You're belittling them. How do you think, just based on that very basic visual exercise, how do you think that those kids that you're disliking, rejecting, yelling at, et cetera, are going to act and respond? Probably pretty hostile they're probably going to whatever plans you're making, right? If you're at the head of the table and you're trying to coordinate these kids to go out for the day, whatever plans you're trying to make, those children are going to actively try and work to work against you. They're going to try and sabotage it. They're going to try and get your attention. They're going to slow you down. They're going to cause all kinds of chaos. 
And this is what Jung discovered, which is that the shadow becomes the kind of psychological material, the part of us that gets in the way of our goals and our aims and the type of relationships that we want and the type of love that we want. And so we have to start to pay attention to these parts of us because if we don't, they will continue to get in the way of the progress and the growth and the development and the love and the connection that we are trying to build in our life. Mm, Very much so. (laughs) I love the analogy of the table too. And it seems that the kids on the left side, at least to me, first and foremost, would want to be understood, you know, without behavior being changed, being seen and accepted because their behavior came from some root. That's right. And that could be understood. And I want to ask you about that because I think you share another quote in the beginning chapters of the book. I'm going to read it now. Within all men is a hidden man, an unseen man, a man who at some point in his life bought the narrative that suppression equals strength and survival. So I'd like you to speak into that. You use these terms a lot in the beginning chapters of the book. What is suppression? Mm-hmm. What is repression? And why is this so pivotal to men's work? Yeah, well, so in, in many ways, if you think about how you learned to, to be a man, how you learned to be, quote unquote, successful at being a man, was oftentimes through these sort of social narratives of suck it up, you know, be a man, stop crying, you know, big boys don't cry, real men don't cry. So there's all these narratives that tell you that if you are a man or a young boy who's feeling or experiencing something that's unsavory, what you do with it is push it down. So that's suppression. It's an outside external force that tells you that you shouldn't feel that way, you shouldn't experience that, you shouldn't think that way, you shouldn't believe that thing. And so you actively work to ignore that part of you. Uh, I'll give two examples. One is a young boy growing up who's sensitive, right? Who, you know, cries every once in a while. Maybe he's getting bullied at school. He comes home. He tells his dad. He's crying. He's emotional. He's like, I, you know, I don't fit in. Uh, the other boys at school are, are bullying me. And the dad's response is, you know, just just shut up. Like, don't feel that way. Like, what's wrong with you? Stop crying, you know? Stand up for yourself. And the father meets him with this kind of, you shouldn't be feeling that way. So in that moment, the boy learns, well, in order for me to be a man, in order for me to appease my father, what I need to do is I need to stuff down this feeling of, I don't belong, I'm sad, etc., And I need to pretend that I feel strong. I need to pretend and put on a persona of strength. And so that becomes a cycle that that boy then lives into. And then usually in his 40s or 50s, he'll have a kind of a midlife crisis where he'll realize that the persona, the facade that he's created of strength, of you know, competence of of feeling very rooted and grounded behind all that is this very real truth of, I feel very insecure. You know, I feel very weak. Sometimes I feel like I'm not able to, to really get my needs met in my relationship or at work. And so that will start to peek through. So that's what suppression is. And then repression is, is something that we as an individual do to hold something down in order to belong. So another example is, Maybe the young boy uh, is angry about something within his family system, right? He's he's not getting the type of attention that he wants from mom. And so, you know, he's acting out a little bit. He's getting a little bit angry and, you know, sort of like kicking and, and just doing what kids normally do. And mom, uh, mom ignores him, right? Mom ignores him entirely, puts him in his room, just shuts him off, 
doesn't engage with him. And so the boy learns that in order to get attention, I need to repress what I'm actually feeling, which is a little bit of anger and frustration. So he'll start to hold that part of him down. So he won't communicate his anger. And that young boy can become a man who's completely disconnected from his anger. And anger is a very important thing. It allows us to set boundaries. It allows us to protect what matters to us. It can be an incredibly powerful force in our life. So repression is the act of pushing down something in order to fit in. Not because somebody told you to do it, but because you have inferred, I need to ignore my anger. I need to ignore my sadness in order for mom to love me, in order for dad to accept me, in order for these these other boys, these other kids to invite me in. So essentially, and just to sort of tie this all back, we as men in our our male culture, there is a very big push for you to prove your strength through suppression, but it's not real. It never leaves men feeling deeply strong or authentic or genuine or congruent. What it leaves men feeling is like an imposter. And the amount of men that I have worked with in the corporate environment, it's like 75%, I think the data shows it's like 70 to 80% of people within corporate environments feel like an imposter. Well, why is that? Because for most of them, they've gone through life suppressing what they actually feel, repressing what they actually want or, or, are, or are experiencing in order to belong. So they create a facade of strength, not a genuine internal knowing of I can navigate and handle really hard shit. I can go through really hard times. <clears throat> Instead, it's pretend. So when they have a conflict with their wife, And they pretend to be unfazed, but they actually feel sad and disconnected. Well, what are they going to do? Well, I need to suppress this. I need to repress this. So I'm going to nub out by going to watch porn. And then they feel more connected from their wife. Or they go and drink and shut down and, you know, go and watch football by themselves for five hours straight and feel more connected from their partner versus prioritizing what they're actually experiencing and saying, you know what, that that really hurt. That sucked. You know, that was hard and communicating from a very authentic and true way what they're actually experiencing. Like, I think the last thing I'll say is, and uh, I wrote this in the book, but it's easier for a man to say, fuck you, than it is to say I'm hurt. It's just the truth. And there's nothing wrong with being a man and saying I'm hurting. You know, sometimes that's the strongest thing that we can do because it's the truth. It's the, it's just the truth. You know, I mean... Uh, can I just tell one one last story that's, that's in the book? Please. Yeah. I've worked with a number of Navy SEALs and men from the military, and one of them had come back from war from Afghanistan. And he was in a relationship that he really loved. He really loved this woman. He wanted to make it work. But he was finding that a lot of his anger and rage was coming out in the relationship. And he didn't really know why. They were constantly arguing. He felt very sort of dysregulated, you know, volatile. He's getting very angry all the time. And we started to dig into what his experience was during the war. And I I asked him a very simple question, which was, did you lose any brothers in arms along the way? And he said, yes. I said, okay, what, what happened? How did you grieve the loss of those men? And very quickly, what we discovered was that they, they just didn't really at all grieve the loss of those men. And he had seen men die in battle. He had been very close friends with a man who had died 20 yards from him. 
And when that man died in the battlefield, they went back to the barracks, they went back to the base, and they posted a photo up of him. They had a moment of silence, and that was it. That was the whole thing. So this man had lost men in his life that he fundamentally and deeply loved and cared about and felt close to, but had never grieved the loss of their lives because he had been taught that in order to be strong, in order to get through battle, in order to navigate through life, you need to push down what you're feeling. And so all of that emotion was starting to pop up in his relationship. He couldn't contain it anymore because all of a sudden his heart was broken open, right? He loved this woman. He's like, I love her. I want to be with her. I'm feeling things that I've never felt before. And it cracked open the vault door to the rest of his emotional body. He couldn't suppress all of it anymore. And as we went through an exercise, I walked him through an exercise that would allow him to grieve the loss of these men. And we came out the other side of it and we paused and I said, how are you feeling? And he, he sat there and, you know, he'd been crying and, and he's like, you know what? I would honestly rather rush a machine gun nest than feel grief, than feel this way. So that just gives an example of the intensity that sometimes we as men are conditioned to when it comes to suppressing and repressing what we're actually feeling in order to be perceived as strong within our culture in order to be perceived as strong to people that we love and feel like we can belong with them. And for most men, there will come a time in their life when they'll realize this mechanism does not work. It will break down. It fundamentally will start to have a net negative impact on their relationships, on their finances, on their health, you know, on their family, on their business, where they'll really start to see the damage, the real, and I mean that, the real damage that this suppression and repression is having on their life. And they won't be able to ignore it anymore. And it might unfortunately come on the other side of hitting rock bottom for some men. Yeah. And I think it often, in my experience, seems like it gets the targets of that repressed emotion are those closest to you. 100%. It's going to be your family. It's a strange kid relationships when you're in your 50s and your kids aren't talking to you for some period of time. A couple comments that I I have on this. It, it seems to me just like the weight that I want guys to realize, and they probably have picked this up of like how important being a father is, you know, the, 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 the real magnitude of this, because so much of what you're sharing is discussing the psychological impact of our own emotional well-being and how that interfaces and shapes the soil of our kids. Another reason to put on the belt of why being a fit father and having that integrated is, is so important. And I also think I thought of like a, when you were talking about, you know, how we post ourselves up to be strong, we feel insecure. It reminds me of like little dogs. Like we've all seen the Chihuahua that has like the massive bark because they, they feel very, you know, they're, they know they're small. And, and I also had this idea of like a young kid with almost like that broken heart who puts on this big, big sheet of armor and then goes out into the world in this like desert with the armor and, and, and tries to project strength, but has hurt, but that armor disconnects us from people. And I thought it was interesting as I was thinking about that, as men, we often glorify the idea of the lone wolf, the solitary hero, this idea of being strong in solo. And we, we glorify this in our movies, whether it's Mark Wahlberg and Shooter or John Wick or whatever it is. There could be better, better examples than that. But what do you think about this concept of the lone wolf? Is it a helpful concept for men or is it a symptom of the damaged male psyche that you know we can be strong in isolation and that we have the ability to just like be that solitary badass? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's a lie. You know, I think it's a, an illusion that we buy into that you're going to be stronger alone. 
And it hasn't always been that way. You know, this is a very, it's a very new concept. If you look from a historical or an anthropological sense, what you'll find is men in groups, always, like always. Hunters hunted in groups. They were not alone. If you were alone, there was a much higher probability that you were not going to survive, period. And so we as men have been the, like the you know the way of men for a long time has been the the path of the group the path of men together and it's not until this sort of last gasp of this sort of the, the pinnacle of the the hero archetype being built on on the ground on the foundation of suppression right that's what the lone wolf is that's what the marlboro man is this notion that you you will be stronger on your own. The, the truth of that is that you're just, there's a, there's a real element of, of cowardice underneath it all because you never have to actually deal with the pain that you probably received from other men, the betrayal that you probably received from other men, how your father wasn't there for you, how he abandoned you and your mother, watching him be abusive, feeling betrayed by other men, right? Having your best friend, you know, sleep with your wife or some version of that, right? So many men have, have experienced some form of pain from another man, whether it's an elder, whether it's a father figure, whether it's a friend, whether it's a colleague. And so this notion of, well, I'll I'll just do it by myself doesn't work. And it ends up isolating you from those around you. And like I said before, the really great men, if you look at the really great men throughout history, are men who are able to be in relationship. They're able to lead relationships and they were able to prioritize connection in those relationships and understand what other people want. Like this is maybe a goofy example, but there's a reason why somebody like Aragon in Lord of the Rings is so popular and so idolized. There's a man who who went on that journey of being the Lone Ranger and had to come out of that space to realize that he actually wasn't having the impact that he wanted and knew that he was capable of having on the world. And that, in fact, he couldn't ever have that impact solo, that he had to join community. He had to join a group. And in doing so, it called him to reconcile with his past. And that's what a lot of men are facing is that there is a kind of protection and safety that comes along with you isolating. It's it's easier in some ways. It just truly is. You know, I think about the times in my life where I was cheating, I was, you know, using substances, substance abuse, alcohol, drugs, porn, etc. Nobody knew about that. Not a single soul knew about the the deep pain that I was in. Nobody knew about the dysfunction that I was in. Nobody knew about the insecurities. And in some ways, I felt safe. I felt safer in doing that because the alternative was to find people that I trusted that I could start to expose those parts of myself to. And that is a very risky business right? There's something about it, again, as we've been talking about, that is confronting for us as men, because we have to undo the years and the decades of suppressing how we're feeling and tune in to the truth of our experience. And and that's where the power is. And the last piece I'll say about this is that in the shadow, we don't just store the, the painful hurt and insecurities. We also store our strengths, 
So there's a reason why in every myth, in every tale, on the other side of facing the dragon is the gold. So when you start to allow these parts of yourself back in, when you are able to admit your insecurities to friends, to family, to a, you know, a, a partner, when you're able to be, I almost hate using the V word, the being vulnerable, because it's so... Um, Maybe true. True to what is. Yeah, yeah. When, you're, when you're able to be true to what is, what you're experiencing, what you've been feeling, what you've been thinking to the people that you can trust, it does something psychologically where you're able to reclaim a strength, a skill, a competency within you that you have discarded along the way. Maybe a confidence within your intelligence, maybe a confidence within your capacity to be loved, maybe uh, a confidence in your capacity to have tough conversations, but you you actually reclaim something that that emboldens you and empowers you and says like, yeah, I can I can do this life. You know, I can get through these hard times. And not only do you signal that to yourself, but you signal to others. So your wife can trust you more. Your friends can trust you more because for most people, and for a lot of relationships, women can feel that there's something that you're hiding. You know, they can tell that there's something that you're ignoring. And so when you start to say, actually, yeah, that's right. I am feeling insecure or I am afraid or I am sad or I am angry. Then they don't have to guess where you stand. They know because you're owning it. Yeah. And I mean, we are, we often think of ourselves as like our conscious minds and what we can pick up with, with our logical thinking and aspect, but we are so much more intuitive than that. And like, we can pick up the undercurrent of energy and whatever you want to go off of that. Another quote I'd like to share in chapter three of the book, you quote Nietzsche and you say, what was silent in the father speaks in the son. And I often found in the son, the unveiled secret of the father. Now there are a lot of fit fathers listening to this right now. How can they aim to be better fathers in light of this discussion we've had so far? What can they be aware of? What kind of questions can they ask themselves? And what can they take away from this conversation to, to bring forth what might be silent in them and then help create a healthier psychological passing to their kids, son or daughter? Man, this one could be its own conversation and book. <laughs> so I'm going to try and condense this down to something tactical and practical that guys can take. I think one of the biggest things that we can ask ourselves as men is, what have I not forgiven my father for? And to be brutally honest about it, what have I not forgiven him for? And what might forgiveness look like towards him? That's one thing. The second thing is, what did my father not teach me or give me that... I would have really liked. And then the follow-up to that question is, how do I begin to give that to myself? How do I begin to give that to myself? So say your father didn't give you uh, quality time or he didn't teach you certain skills, right? Maybe you wanted, this is a very common thing that I hear from men. I wanted my father to teach me archery or how to hunt, you know, or like how to mow the grass. I remember sharing in a workshop with a few hundred men that my grandfather taught me how to mow the grass. Just a very basic thing, right? He's like, you should go this way and then diagonally that way. And it was such an arbitrary thing at the age of like 12. But I look back at it and when I shared it at the workshop, what I realized was so many men responded to that by saying, I wish my father had taught me that. I wish a man in my life had shown me how to do that. So there's merit in looking at what did I really crave from my father? 
What did I really want him to teach me as a man or how to be a man? What are some of the skills that I wish that he had shown me? And then do that. Literally commit to going out in the world. Like One of the things that I have picked up is archery for myself. And so we bought five acres of land and we built a house. And I have a little section on the land where there's this really long strip between the trees that's just open where I now have built an archery range. And so it's little things like this where you can start to what I in the book call father yourself because the act of fathering yourself, of parenting the kind of younger version of you, the boy that still lives within you, right? The act of doing that will strengthen your capacity to be a father tenfold. It just, it's, it's astronomical because you will be very practiced in understanding what you wanted as a boy, you know, what you needed as a boy, and it'll help you attune to your kids, right? How to discipline them better, how to be present for them, how to understand their, you know, emotional up and downs, right? When they're going like, my son is 20, 21 months old. And sometimes he'll go from like laughing to crying in a heartbeat. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And, but then I realized like, oh, I have that within me too, where sometimes there's that emotional roller coaster that's, that's happening, that my younger self is still alive and present. So start to really look at what is it that you wished for from your father and be honest about it and then commit to giving yourself those things first and foremost, and then seeing how you can bring them into your parenting with your own kids. You know, maybe that's something that you pass down. Like historically, the role of the father is somebody who's this sort of arbiter or continuer of traditions of certain things, specifically and often masculine or male traditions, right? So teaching the young man, this is how you carve a, a spear or an arrowhead, right? Teaching him, this is how you take aim. This is how you use a slingshot. This is how you uh, learn to fish, you know, and to fillet the fish, like very simple and basic things that maybe if you're honest, you would have loved to learn as a boy. And if you can begin to give those to yourselves, then you will be parenting yourself. You'll be fathering yourself and you can transfer that to your kid. And maybe you don't even teach him at first, maybe, or her, maybe it's just you doing it while they're around and they can kind of see like, oh, interesting. This is, this is what my dad does, you know, and maybe I have an interest in that too. So there's these very simple things. And I think lastly, it is seeing who we wanted our father to be, but didn't get. Most young boys, most, not all, but most young boys at some point will have a kind of arrogance within them that says, I know who my father should be in order to raise me. He should act this way and he should say these things and he should connect with me in these ways and he should call me at these times and he should you know, teach me these very specific things. So being able to witness who you thought you wanted your father to be and seeing if you can let that go entirely. And if your father's still alive, giving yourself the, the grace and the permission to see who he truly is without layering on top of it who you think he should be as a man and liberating him, freeing him from your expectations as a son. Because one of the things that we never really think about as men, especially when we become fathers, is what does it mean for me to be a good son? 
And if your father is still in your life, then I would encourage you to ask that question. How do I love my father for the man that he is and not for the man that I wanted him to be and not for the man that I want him to be still and to, to live as if he didn't have so much control over your life still? Wow. <laughs> A lot there. Yeah. Very powerful. <laughs> Very powerful. I, I One personal reflection I'd like to share is I, I actually, now that you shine a lot of light on it, I've been in the process of actually like fathering myself recently, having lost my dad at a young age, I didn't get the man skills. And it's not surprising that my new hobbies right now are buying power tools and learning how to drill <laughs> stuff around my house and like getting geared to go backpacking and teaching my daughter these things. Yeah. And it's amazing to me when I think about this is like the deficiencies that we feel personally that we want to like grow into or acquire, whether it's a skill to fill a void or something to heal, are intrinsically the exact puzzle piece that we're going to go give to our kids. So we are like connected through the relationship threads with our parents. This is like the ancestral passing. And it's probably even deeper than we understand in, in DNA and however that works that we'll learn in 150, 200 years. But it's so cool how we're all connected generationally through these relationships. Now, I want to ask you, this is very, very similar to what we've been talking about. There's two big words that come up a lot in your book, and you talk a lot about pain and resistance, but you talk about them not in the light that many people do, which is, you know, something maybe to avoid. You talk about them as signs. Like, so why should men lean into this experience of resistance? And what does resistance like tell us Mm. about where it shows up, how it shows up, what it means? Uh, First off, I really appreciate the way that you asked that question because it evokes a very clear answer. Imagine for a moment that you as a man are going to go and hunt and you're tracking an animal, okay? And in in this sort of myth that I'm creating, this sort of story that I'm creating, the animal is a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning in life. If you're tracking that animal and there are all different signs, right? There's hoof prints of the animal in the ground, there's the scent on the wind, there's the sort of like markings, there's the droppings. If you only view, if you say some of these markings and trackings, I'm going to listen to, I'm going to look at, and the other ones I'm going to discard and ignore, you are lessening the chance you're going to be able to catch that animal. You're lessening the possibility that you'll be able to track it. And so, so many men want to hunt purpose, fulfillment, and joy and meaning in this life, but they want to ignore the signs that might actually lead them there. So they want to look at all the good shit, right? They want to like, oh, well, here's where I feel really excited. And here's where I feel really joyful. And and here's what feels really good for me. Follow your passion. Cool. All of that's great. No problem. What about your grief? Have you ever considered that the key for you gaining ground on the pursuit and the track of your purpose and your meaning in life requires you to learn to read the signs of your grief and your pain and your resistance and your sadness. Those are all markings along the trail. And when you ignore them, you literally ignore data that is trying to point you in a direction. All of it's just data, right? It's just information. Your anger is information. Your grief is information. Your sadness is data. Your joy is data. It's, It's all just data and information. And so if you choose to go through life only reading half of the data, you are intentionally blinding yourself. You are intentionally cutting yourself off to a part of 
the flow and the information and the data that you actually need in order to traverse this life effectively. And the last thing I'll say is you will be showing your children what it looks like to ignore their own hurt. You will be teaching them by proxy what it looks like to ignore their own hurt and to not become somebody that knows what to do with pain and discomfort. So you have a choice, right? You can start to look at the data and make it be as relevant as the gratitude and the joy and the love and the happiness and to see what can come out of that space. I have learned just as much from the grief of my life that I have from the high moments. But we live in this culture of modernity that tells you that you should only ascend, you should only go up, you should only win, and that there's no lessons to be found in the hardship of life. You know, when if you talk to people at the end of their life or you interview people and say, what's been the most meaningful things that have happened to you? Half of the stories that they will tell will be about hardship, will be about hard times that were so fundamentally meaningful towards them because of what they got out of them. And then the last thing I'll say specifically about resistance is that a lot of these things are means of protecting yourself as a man. And so when you feel resistance towards something, resistance towards a morning routine, resistance towards change, resistance toward you know eating a certain way, know that you're trying to protect yourself in some capacity. And generally speaking, I don't want to sort of like give it all away, but generally speaking, what you're protecting yourself from is the fear of the unknown, the fear of the unknown. What we know we will cling to, even if what we know is abusive and dysfunctional. (laughs) It's really, really messed up, right? So if you are somebody that eats a bag of Cheetos and a pint of ice cream every night before bed, that's known. It's something that feels comfortable. And to venture into the territory of not doing that and waking up at 6 a.m. and going to the gym is terrifying because your brain and your body don't know what to expect. And your brain and your body are literally wired for you to steer towards what you know. So you have to condition yourself as a man to say, okay, I feel resistance towards that. There's probably an edge that I can move towards. I don't know what it's going to look like, but let's see where it leads me. And in doing that, you expand your tolerance for the unknown and you expand your tolerance for regulating yourself in venturing into the territory of new things, of change, because change requires you to enter into the unknown, period. Wow. I mean, I think guys who have gone through our Fit Father program will reflect on that being their direct experience. Like, I'm so thankful that we are embodied, that we have these physical bodies and that they have the ability to get out of shape and we have the ability to get them back into shape because it's such a tangible thing. Like the unknown of pushing through and going through a focused period where you start to build an exercise habit and then it becomes intrinsically motivating over time. And then you're actually gaining this meta skill that applies to all areas of your life of like expanding, of doing hard things, of shaking off limiting beliefs and you retrain. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about another important emotion and experience that men have, and and that's shame. What is the role of shame in our lives? How do we approach shame, heal shame, understand shame in ourselves and maybe even in our loved ones? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I think a good distinction to begin with is the difference between guilt and shame, because a lot of us conflate those things. And I think for most men, 
shame is often the emotion that they are least conscious of in the work that I've done. It's usually the thing that they're feeling when they, right before they sabotage. It's usually the thing that they feel, you know, before they start the argument or, you know, before they blow up or become defensive or get reactive, but they don't know it. They're, usually we are the least conscious to our shame because our shame is a tough emotion. And, and here's why. Guilt generally says, I have done something wrong. So I said the wrong thing. I forgot to take out the garbage. I forgot to pick the thing up from the store. You know, I, I, for, I forgot to do that thing and, and I did something wrong, right? Or we got into an argument and I became reactive and maybe I said some things that weren't great. I did something wrong. That's guilt. And guilt's a very normal emotion and it's okay to feel that because it helps to coordinate us towards how we want to act, respond, behave, choose, et cetera. It can be very beneficial. Shame says, I am wrong. I am wrong. Not, I have done something wrong, but there is something wrong with me. And so for most men, how they're operating, not most, but for some men, how they're operating is that there is something fundamentally wrong with them. And the guys that are listening to this, that they know that that's true, it'll be like, yeah, I, I know that. I can feel that in my body, that I feel like something's wrong with me. And I felt like that growing up. I felt like that as a boy. I felt like that as a teenager. I felt like that as a young man. I felt like there was something wrong with me. And for a long time, I was trying to figure out, I'm speaking about me personally, I was trying to figure out what the hell is wrong with me. I can't seem to get my shit together. I'm lying. I'm cheating. I'm betraying. I'm, you know, I'm not living the life that I want. And I had attributed a lot of that to there is something fundamentally wrong with me. And what I had to realize was that shame and the notion that there is something wrong with me is a learned behavior. We learn it in a family system, in a friend group, at school, on a team. We learn through other people treating us a certain way or saying certain things to us that there is something fundamentally wrong with us, right? So not I did something wrong, but I am wrong. Now, shame isn't all bad because in moments we have done things that we should feel ashamed of. Right? If you've been married for a decade and out of nowhere you go and hire a prostitute and go and cheat on your wife with that prostitute, there's a high likelihood, especially if you're in a, a marriage where it's not an open marriage, there's no agreements around sleeping with other women, there's a likelihood that you are going to feel shame and that that's okay. Where the uh, line sort of draws is that for a lot of us, that shame turns into something that is toxic. And I almost hate using that word, but it turns into something that feeds itself. So we begin to act and behave in ways to reinforce this notion that I'm fucked up. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. And so we start to make decisions and choices and spend time with certain people and hang out at certain places and you know have certain routines and habits that reinforce there's something wrong with me. So uh, just another example is for a lot of guys that can't stop watching porn, that becomes the thing, the behavior, the decision that reinforces there's something wrong with me. I can't stop watching porn. Something wrong with me, right? Or texting the woman or uh, you know, drinking too much at night or smoking too much weed or whatever it is. That becomes the thing that reinforces the story of there's something wrong with me. And so we, you know, this is a bit of a deeper piece, but we have to trace the lineage of our shame back to its origins.
And we have to ask ourselves the question, like, where did I learn this? Because you likely weren't born into this world with the programming that you're screwed up. You learn that along the way somewhere. And I really want to reinforce that for all the men that are listening to this that have felt like there's something fundamentally wrong with me. I am shocked at how many men carry around this story. I am broken. There's something wrong with me, right? I'm screwed up. Many of us carry around the story. So we have to be willing to start to look back at where did I learn this story? You know, did I have a parent who just left me alone for hours at a time on the weekend and I started to learn that there's something wrong with me because they don't want to be around me, especially if that parent was their only caregiver? Or if you had a parent like me who would say things like, like you're a stupid piece of shit or what the hell is wrong with you or, you know, you're such a dumbass. If you heard things like that, then over time, and this is the really important piece, because children are ego beings, they're just little bundles of ego, they can't differentiate between, oh, dad's mad at me or mom's mad at me. They think dad's mad at me because I am faulty there's something wrong with me. I either did something wrong or there's something wrong with me inherently. So we have to be able to look back at our past and see where did I start to learn this story? Who did I start to learn this from? And can I challenge it? You know, can I confront that story? Can I see if maybe there's a possibility that's not true? And if you are a father, then this work is interesting because you can look at your kids And you can start to think, you know, I I remember when I started to do this work, thinking back to, you know, being five years old, seven years old and hearing those things. And I think about having my own child and I do now, and I think about him being five or six and saying those things to my son, how damaging that would have been, you know, and that of course he would take it on as if there must be something fundamentally wrong with me for my father to say those things to me. And so we have to look back see where we learned that. And we have to do the the hard work of forgiving whoever taught us that story and embracing the boy that we were that was innocent, you know, that was innocent, that maybe had no other choice but to adopt that story. And in doing that, we create an opening and a possibility for us to liberate ourselves from passing that on to our kids. Yeah. You put down the bag, you become enlightened through that healing, that forgiveness. And I mean, it all comes down to what I'm hearing a meta message here is like awareness and reflection is the name of this game. Like being true with your experience, shining more light onto what you're feeling, knowing that it's okay. And going through this very systematic process that you have laid out in the book, which by the way, where we're not sharing here and why I recommend everyone picks this up is at the end of each of these chapters, there's a series of reflection and integration questions that if you literally just bought the book, didn't read the whole damn thing, but just answered those questions in the boxes, it would probably be the best money you've ever spent. So there's that. Now, I want to start to talk about the back part of the book and really about like love and legacy and some of these other things. And I want you to speak into the role of the masculine and the feminine in the male psyche. And maybe it plays into the role that mothers play in development too. This is something that's become very relevant to me. I suppose as I became more mature over the last 10 years, I actually found that I was integrating a lot more of like these feminine aspects of my personality and my being. I learned how to actually love. I learned empathy. And my daughter cracked me wide open to another level of that. Let's speak to that though. Masculine and feminine, we're integrated beings in some sense. Like, What's it like as a man? And do we have both these energies? How do they play? How can we understand this? Yeah, really good. So 
in the Jungian framework, there's the masculine and the feminine, but he calls them the anima and the animus. And so the animus is the masculine and the anima is the feminine. In Jung's framework, as a man, your consciousness is the animus, it's the masculine. And then your unconscious is the anima. And there's many things I could say about this. I'm just trying to think about condensing this down to something that's useful to the men that are, that are listening to this. We do have all of these energies within us and you can see them. There's many different forms, right? You can see yin and yang. Some people call it Shiva Shakti. Some people call it, you know, go and flow. There's, there's just so many different words that we use to describe these different polarities or energies that are, that are within us. And where we learn those polarities are from our parents, right? So generally speaking, you're going to learn about your own feminine nature through the image of your mother. And you're going to learn about your own masculine nature through the image of your father. And the relationship to the feminine is interesting because for the first three years of your life as a child, specifically for the first up to two years, right? So zero birth to two, a child cannot differentiate between itself and mother. Cannot. So its nervous system and its neurology are literally experiencing in some ways what mom is experiencing. So if your mother is extremely anxious and fear-based, as a baby, you're going to start to form this relationship and this connection to the feminine as fearful, as something that you should be afraid of, or as something that is afraid constantly. And you start to form this unconscious knowing of what the feminine is. And as you get older, that will oftentimes get projected onto the women that you date. And, you know, we could, we could go deep into that. But I think one of the main pieces that, that I think is important to all this is that when you get into a relationship with a woman, it will start to reveal something about you. Right. So if you've ever been in a relationship with most guys have where they fall head over heels in love with a woman and they're obsessed with her and they find themselves becoming like needy and they're over texting and they're oversharing and they're like giddy and they can't get enough of it. And they, they find themselves sort of acting in a way that's like, why the hell am I doing this? You know, I'm turning into like a stage five cleaner here. Like what's going on? Generally speaking, that is, is often because that man, his feminine nature within himself, how he wants to view his own feminine nature has been connected or projected onto that woman that he's dating. So she sort of becomes this perfect woman to him, the embodiment of how he views the ultimate feminine. And oftentimes because he has outsourced something within himself that he lacks onto that woman. So I'll be more clear about that. Say if you're a man who's very harsh with himself, right? Very harsh, very demeaning in inner story, you know, self-critical. And then he gets in a relationship. You get in a relationship with a woman who's very kind, very loving, and you find yourself pursuing and chasing after her validation, chasing after her recognition, chasing after her praise, needing her to tell you you're good enough, smart enough, sexy enough, you know, how good you were in bed last night, the whole thing, right? Why the hell is that happening? Like, why does that actually happen? Well, it's happening because you lack that feminine trait of compassion within yourself. And so you need that sustenance and that nutrient from the woman that you're dating because you have disconnected from that own feminine, from that feminine quality within yourself. 
So being in relationship with a woman will start to reveal these traits and these parts of you that have maybe been underdeveloped or that you're afraid of or that you don't want to connect to. And so we can start to see like, okay, when am I expressing, when am I allowing myself to be in this more feminine orientation and in a more masculine orientation? Because the masculine is going to help you create structure and ground and provide order and create direction and have a sense of vision of where are things going? Where is my life going? Where's my career going? Where's my health, my relationship, my marriage, my family? Where are all these things going? What's the direction I want to take them in? And then the feminine is going to provide that nurturing, that care, that compassion within yourself so that when you get things wrong, you don't just automatically beat the crap out of yourself. There's room for some compassion that's within yourself that you don't then need in such massive amounts from your partner. And it's not to say that that we shouldn't be in a relationship where our partner doesn't give us praise and validation and compassion. Absolutely. But it's the amount of craving of that that's indicative of the lack of wholeness that we feel. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we get to look at when we're in relationship with a woman, what's what's being revealed about us? What do we what do we think that we really need from her? What are we saying that she is, right? What do we dislike about her? I, I hear a lot of men in our modern culture that are like, oh, my my wife or my girlfriend, she's so angry. She's so aggressive, you know, like she's so dominating. And generally, if I dig a little bit deeper, what I start to notice is that those men are disconnected from their own assertiveness. You know, they have abandoned their own assertiveness. And so there's this interplay where their partner is more in her quote unquote masculine. She's more in this very assertive, dominating energy. And he's more in his feminine orientation of being more compassionate, more understanding, you know, more, more sort of caring. And he's oftentimes, these men are very afraid of their own assertive energy to create boundaries, to create structure, to say, you know, that's enough, or I don't want to do that, or I don't want to go on that, you know, I don't want to go to that show or that dinner date. And so they go along with whatever their partner says, and then resentment builds. So it's important for us to have some form of framework. If you don't like masculine and feminine, you can use anima and animus or yin and yang or whatever framework that you like, but to start to see these opposing energies and how they're being expressed within you, because the aim is to bring some coherence within you. You know, like I'll give you an example. My previous career in a previous life in my early 20s, I sang opera. And when I was doing that, I was also doing yoga, which, you know, for the most part, these are sort of very feminine things, very expressive oriented things. But I was also lifting weights. I also was street racing and and stunting my thousand cc motorcycle. So it, you know, in some ways it was me trying to trying to find some coherence between the masculine and feminine within me, some, some of those polarities within me. And the last thing I'll say is that if we are not willing or able to give ourselves some of these feminine qualities, nurturing, self-care, because the feminine is oriented towards receiving and the masculine is oriented towards giving, generally speaking. Yeah. I mean, look at even the motif of ejaculation and reception. I mean, it's it's there even in like the <laughs> the very nature of how this starts. It's a, it's a very like good example. But where a lot of men struggle is that they they're disconnected from their feminine, they're disconnected from receiving. And so they simultaneously really want praise, validation, love from their partner, but they will not allow themselves to receive it because they think that it makes them more weak. And so we have to start to practice 
receiving the love, receiving the care, receiving the validation for that is already present in our life. And then we also have to practice giving that to ourselves. You know, a lot of the stuff that I lay out in the book, it's all practice-based. It's like, you need to develop these skills. Self-compassion is a skill that some of us just weren't taught. I wasn't taught to be self-compassionate, so I beat the shit out of myself. So I had to learn to be compassionate towards myself. That was a practice. That was a skill I had to develop. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same path as like the guys who are walking this fit father path and are working on the skill of healthier nutrition, healthier exercise, understanding there are concepts. And then there's like the dojo of your life and you're practicing. This is the, this is like the inner version of that. And I'd like to share a quote from kind of recapping what you said. I just thought it was really awesome. It says your relationship to your partner, friends, work in the world are all secondary. Your primary relationship is your relationship with yourself your choices, ethics, morals, values, and psychology. Your relationship and partner are a mirror through which you see yourself more clearly, a place to sharpen your edge and develop healthier, stronger, and deeper relationship with your own nature. I have a question past that, but I just want to share that because I think it's a nice summation and probably a more bigger picture framework of how we can like start to view our primary partners and our primary relationships as mirrors. And insofar as we start to do that, I think we project a lot less or we notice our projections and stuff. And then healing happens around the game. Now, this is going to be like kind of like not 180, but I want to talk about ejaculation because it does come up in this back part of the book. And I think it's a very, very important thing that not enough men maybe like understand the significance of that or like the impact of it on our bodies and our nervous systems. It's like this creative force where our brain and our nervous system, you know, does the seed of life and pairs with the egg. And here we are. What can you say to men about like ejaculation? What's important to know? What didn't our dads teach us about <laughs> that? And what's the value in understanding this for our well-being and our performance? So good. Can I just explain a little bit about the nervous system in order to answer this question? Please. So within your autonomic nervous system, there are sort of two branches and you've probably heard of them before, which is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And the basic way to think about them is that the sympathetic is like your gas pedal and the parasympathetic is the brake pedal. So sympathetic is go, get stuff done, do your emails, do your task list, you know, work out, that kind of stuff. And parasympathetic, brake pedal, rest and digest, calm, peaceful, relaxed. For most of us as men, we are very much in that sympathetic nervous system response throughout the day. We're very go, 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 get stuff done, do, doing oriented. And we struggle to be in a more restful, uh, relaxed state when doing anything. And so for many of us, we don't have a method or a mechanism that allows us to move from this go-oriented, getting shit done, doing state into a restful state. So a lot of guys will use pornography, sex, specifically though, ejaculation as a means of hitting the reset button on their nervous system, as a means of moving out of this stress state and into a parasympathetic state, out of the go state and into the rest state. So the one thing that I really want to hit home is, and I teach about this a lot when I do workshops or men's weekends, and I don't think I talked about it in the book, is that most guys don't actually know how their erection works or what happens when they ejaculate. Most of us know like what we're taught in school is like, oh yeah, when you get aroused, blood enters to the penis, and then that's how you get erect, right? Right. Well, what they don't tell you is that 
In order for that erection to happen, you have to be in a parasympathetic relaxed state. So the more stressed you are, the more anxious you are, the more overwhelmed you are, the more in that sympathetic nervous system response you are, the harder it is for you to get an erection, the easier that it is for you to come too fast. So most erectile dysfunctions that are non-medical and most premature ejaculation that is non-medical is because the man is in a constant state of stress and his body can't move out of that stress state. So the way that our arousal works is we get aroused. Maybe you see your partner, you start to, your heart rate starts to, you know, go a little bit faster. Blood starts to you know, pump through your body, but you feel rested for the most part. And that's what allows an erection to happen. And then the closer that you get to ejaculation, the more that your ANS, your autonomic nervous system starts to dial up more and more towards this sympathetic nervous system response. And then as soon as you come and ejaculate, your body moves in for a brief moment, heavy into the sympathetic nervous system, heavy into that gas pedal, and then all the way off. So after you ejaculate, prolactin is released in your brain and oxytocin is released in your brain, which is the bonding chemical. And prolactin in women is, is actually specifically for lactations, for breastfeeding. But within men, it has a different function, which is to actually calm and soothe your system. So it's, you can think of it as like the, the soothing chemical in some ways. So after you ejaculate, your body moves into this very calm, relaxed state. So most, a lot of guys and myself included, I mean, I used to watch porn every day and have sex all the time. I was using ejaculation as a means to regulate my internal system, to feel less stressed, to feel less anxious, to feel less spun out. And that was my sort of like drug of choice. And I think for a lot of guys, that is their means of regulating their nervous system because they don't have any other practice. The big thing to this, and I'll, I'll give some help because they're like, okay, well, what if I'm dealing with you know, premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction and it's not medical? The major thing that I want every man to know, and I wish I could like put this out on billboards, is that your breath acts as the dial between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic. So when you start to become more stressed and more anxious, your respiratory rate per minute starts to elevate, meaning that you're taking more breaths per minute, which generally means that your breath is more shallow in the body. And then your heart rate also speeds up to match that. Okay. When you exhale a little bit longer, so just say that you like practice this, if you're listening to this, you could inhale for a count of four, pause for two, and then exhale out the mouth for six. Pause for two. Inhale through the nose for four. Pause for two. And if you just repeat that cycle, exhale at the mouth for six. If you repeat that cycle for about three to five minutes, research has shown that that longer exhale, uh, the, and this is really key, the longer exhale than the inhale will automatically begin to regulate your respiratory rate per minute. So it'll reduce how many breaths you're taking per minute. And in turn, that'll force your heart rate to slow down. And in turn, that'll cause your body to shift more into a parasympathetic state, more into a relaxed state naturally.
So if you're somebody that has anxiety or stress, that's a really great exercise to do on a daily basis or whenever you need in order to just bring some of that energy down and start to move into a more relaxed state. Most guys that are struggling with performance anxiety, it's because they're in their head. And the more that your locus of attention, the locus of focus is in your thoughts, the more that you're going to be what's called self-referencing. So you're just going to be asking questions like, am I going to stay hard long enough? Am I going to come too quick? Is she enjoying this? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so how we interrupt that, how we disrupt that self-referencing is by focusing as much attention as we can on the breath, on slowing the inhale down and extending the exhale out. And in doing that, we begin to what's called regulate our body. And that will allow us to experience the sensations in our body, experience the pleasure, experience the arousal, and allow us to regulate our erection and our ejaculation to some degree, right? You're not going to you're not going to go from like, you know, orgasming in, in 60 seconds to not coming in an hour, you know, and, and being like a porn star, but it will allow you to begin to slow what's happening down in your body. And that will shift how you engage sexually. So I know I just said a lot of information. So I'm going I'm to pause there and see if there's anything that you wanted to hone in on. Well, I think it really comes down to the understanding of the nervous system. Like what we learned in medical school was point, parasympathetic, shoot, sympathetic is a good little mnemonic for that. And the breath as this anchor and this switch that we can use consciously to move between or really predominantly move ourselves to a parasympathetic state at any time, whether it is in sex or otherwise. And just like, look at the converse when someone's having a sympathetic, like panic attack, what does the breathing look like? Exactly as you'd imagine it to be typically through the mouth and the chest, very frantic kind of breathing. So the breath is powerful. And we did recently release our breathwork course for all access members in the Fit Father community. And the one thing we had a relaxation one, and it's so good that you said this because the one type of breathing is making sure the exhale is two times as long as the inhale. So awesome. like, there's obviously a lot there, right? Yeah. All right. So we've gone through a lot. I have like one or two more questions. And this question here is from the last part of your book, which is entitled Legacy. And you open this chapter in this final section with a powerful statement, really powerful statement. <laughs> legacy is the ego's attempt at eternity. Chase legacy and you'll forever grasp at an illusion. Pursue purpose and meaning and you'll leave behind something of substance. And man, does that hit hard. Because I think for me, coming from like the personal development background, there are so many times where this idea of legacy is shown in a very like positive light, this idea that what you're going to create, what you're going to leave behind. We've all seen these types of messages, but it seems much more true what you shared is legacy is an attempt of a fragile ego that's ultimately afraid of die. You're going to leave something permanent because there's this fear that of non-existence, of, of poof, vanish, all gone, all this work. Please speak into this idea of legacy, how it relates to men and what's what's in your opinion the healthy approach to this idea of meaning maybe beyond ourselves or beyond the finite nature of our minds and our bodies? Hmm. So I think there's a few things that are important with this conversation of legacy. Number one, a lot of men, myself included, but a lot of the men that I've worked with have a resistance towards limitations, endings, boundaries, and all of those words, if you trace them back, are rooted in death, right? The finality of something, the ending of something. 
And so for many guys, what I've noticed is that, and this isn't for everybody, right? But I really would encourage people to just hear what I'm saying and see if it's true for you. And if not, then write it off. But for many guys that I've worked with, they're pursuing legacy because they want something that they've built to outlast them, to live on, to kind of, in a way, to cheat death, to act as if limitations and endings don't pertain to them. And now this isn't to say that you can't build something meaningful. It's not to say that you can't build something absolutely incredible. It's just to know that the whatever it is, right? If you look at Tesla and Elon Musk, that company will die at some point. It might outlast him, but that company will not be around indefinitely. That's an impossibility. You know, it's just not going to happen. And so we have this notion that if we can just build something big enough that will last for long enough, then that will be a signal that our life has been meaningful. And it's false. I have worked with so many men in their 60s and even in their 70s that have built up $100 million and billion-dollar companies and businesses that have had huge impacts. And while those things are meaningful, there are other elements to life that are equally as meaningful. So we have to be able to look at, I think one of the biggest things, and I talk about this in the book, is that a legacy is made by who you are right now in this moment and how you behave and what you choose and how you treat people and how you interact with people. Legacy isn't just what you do, it's who you are. It's how you be in the world. And if what you've built is something amazing, but who you are is an asshole, then that's probably not a legacy that you want. You know, one of the biggest things, there's a lot of research around death and end of life care. And one of the biggest things that that people say that they want at the end of life is forgiveness. It's the thing that we all want, forgiveness. I want to be forgiven. And so maybe your legacy is that you build something amazing, but maybe your legacy also includes that you live life in such a way where you give forgiveness, where you ask for forgiveness, where you act in a way that is congruent so that when you die, the way that people talk about you matches who you knew you were in your lifetime. And for me, that's a legacy that feels worthwhile because I, I will build incredible things and I, and I am building you know, some, some really cool stuff right now. But I think for me, one of the most impactful things is what I leave people with every single time I'm in an interaction with them. You know, did they get something meaningful? Was I deeply present for them? Did I get a sense of who they were? You know, belonging is probably the most underrated asset that we all want. We all want to belong. And so if you can be someone who allows people to feel like they belong or are seen or understood in every moment, my friend, you will create a legacy that you cannot quantify, that you cannot, you know, there's no spreadsheet that that's going to be captured in. And I think that for most men, and I could be wrong about this, but my sense, my gut, my intuition tells me that for most men, that's the legacy that they really want. You know, it really truly is. It's when we lose sight of that, that we want to build something that, 
you know, spans a thousand years from now, some company or business or something like that. And maybe that thing will happen and maybe it won't. But if you've acted in a way where you've allowed people to belong and they felt loved by you, my God, what a gift, you know, like what a gift to humanity. That rings so completely true in my experience. And I think that's where I'd like to end this because that is what a message. And I'll ask you one final question. What is the final call to arms you have to men who have listened to this besides go and buy this book, where they can buy it, it is out now, and where they can connect with you more deeply? Because I know there are men, especially men here at the end of this conversation who are still listening, that this is clearly very resonant with. And I can say from having been able to read like a pre-release copy of your book, like this is the book that is going to be on my bookshelf next to Way of the Superior Man. It is that good. So please give us a a call to arms on, on where men can do, how they can connect more deeply and where they can get this book. Well, first off, I just, I really want to acknowledge you for your support. I think having known you over the years, it's just been such an honor to be in your presence and to see you step into fatherhood and, and to just know you, you know, I feel like you are leaving that legacy and it just is such a pleasure to know you. And so it, it means a lot to me that you would say that honestly, like truly, truly, it means a lot to me. I think for the guys that are out there, you know, the, the call is, you of course, find the book. If you need anything, message me on Instagram. I, I try and get back to as many people as possible. It's just at man talks or, you know, hit me up through the website. Um, I think those are, those are honestly the main pieces and the, the call is the call is really to just turn towards the parts of yourself that you feel like they, they don't belong, you know, in your marriage and your relationship and your friend circles and to find places and spaces where you can bring those parts to belong. You can bring them back and welcome them home into a more fuller, more robust version of who you are. And that that is something that you may never be thanked for by your wife and children, but it's something that they will benefit from deeply. Man, what an articulate and powerful conversation. One of my favorite on this podcast, Connor Beaton. Thank you, my friend, for being the light that you are and being the champion of this men's work. I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Fit Father Project podcast. If you love what you heard, please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread this show to more men who need this valuable info. To watch full video episodes of this podcast and other motivational videos to inspire your training and more, Visit our Fit Father Project YouTube channel. It's free and everything's made for busy guys over 40 like you. Visit youtube.com forward slash Fit Father Project to get access to our entire video library. And finally, if you or someone in your life is interested in becoming a fit father or needs help losing weight, building muscle, and living healthier after age 40, then visit fitfatherproject.com where you can see our proven programs, supplement line for guys 40 plus, and free meal plan and workouts to get you started. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi signing off. I'll see you in the next episode.